All right, well, today we are tackling, um, continuing to tackle this topic of Anabaptism. And uh, we've been in this now for, this is the third week, and we've gone um, not so much into the details. We're staying a little bit more on, you know, uh, overview of, of the topic. And so my goal is to do that a little bit again today, but I want to look at today two specific areas um, that I think are important for us to, to understand where we as Anabaptists land and how we process um, these. And the first one we want to look at today is, is Scripture. What is an Anabaptist view of Scripture? Now, we've talked about this already um, somewhat, but I want to look at it a little bit more carefully today. And then the last one is we want to look at this concept of peace and nonviolence or non-resistance. Now, th- those two, both of these, we could spend a whole series just on talking about nonviolence. Um, there's a lot of, lot of things that, that uh, come up with that discussion. But let's start by looking at the Anabaptist view of Scripture. And if you've missed the previous sermons, I would encourage you to go on our YouTube channel or you can go on our podcast uh, and listen to them in that way. But during the centuries leading up to the Reformation, and we've talked about this a little bit, so let me just a you know, little, little recap here. The Roman Catholic Church had all spiritual authority. Okay, and that's important for us too, and that's not a mock on them or anything like that. It's just simply saying what it is. If you needed uh, an authority in the area of spirituality, the Roman Catholic Church had dominance in that area. And they made their tradition superior to the authority of the Bible in some ways. Um, they, this led to a lot of corruption, major corruption, and also resulted in practices that are contrary to the Bible itself. Uh, they interpreted the scriptures to mean certain things. So, for example, they would pray to the saints and they would pray to Mary, something that you do not really see reference in the Bible. Then you also have this, what's called the Immaculate Conception. It's the belief that they have that Mary was protected from original sin, and so therefore Mary herself was sinless. Jesus was not the only one who was sinless. His mother on earth was also sinless. Transubstantiation. This is something that they, they held to, and I believe they still hold to, and that's the belief that if an ordained priest prays over the bread and prays over the juice, then it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus. And this is something, again, that we don't believe in. And so here you can already see the authority and the power that the church would have, that the only way you could have communion a proper way was for a priest to do it. Uh, or to lead it, because if a priest didn't pray over the bread and the juice, um, then it was just bread and juice. And then you have the indulgences, and this is a complicated one, but ultimately, if you want a real simplistic um, um, understanding of it, it's this idea of salvation on sale. And then you have, and there's more, but I want to look at papal, the papal authority. The Catholic Church believes that Jesus made Peter the leader of the apostles and of the church. Um, they take... Uh, Matthew 18, 19, where it says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you bind uh, loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Uh, And so they look at this as meaning that Jesus made Peter the representative of the spokesperson for Jesus here on earth. And therefore, he was Christ's representative on earth. 
They believe that Peter was able to then pass on this apostolic authority, known as apostolic secession, to others, because Peter became the first bishop in Rome and then passed it on. And so therefore, the Catholics believe that they have a perfect chain from Peter to the Pope today. And therefore, the Pope is the representative of Christ here on earth. And whatever the Pope says, Jesus would have said. And so you, again, you see the authority and the power that that gives. There's some complications with that because there's been times where the Catholic Church had three popes. Um, and so then which one is? And I believe right now even there are two popes because one hasn't passed away yet. So this created some frustration for the church, but when the church has all the authority in the areas of, of spiritual matters, well then, how do you debate these things? So the Protestant Reformation, and this is where the Anabaptists come out of, they challenge the authority of the Catholic um, tradition and the power of the Pope. They wanted to change and reform the church. And, and so at the heart of the, was the role of Scripture. Um, and so at this time, before the Reformation started, the Scriptures had not really yet been translated into the common man's language. Um, it was this Vulgate Latin and only, you know, the Catholic priest could really read it. And so the average person was not able to read Scripture. And so again, you, you see the setup for how the church had a lot of influence on what people believed. And therefore, the people were dependent on the priest for the Scripture. And I'm sure you can see very quickly how this would become uh, something that the church could take advantage of or the priest could take advantage of. You know, if I'm the only one that can read the Bible and, and read it to you, and if I am upset with you, then I will only read certain passages and you have no choice to say, well, I think there's another passage that also talks about this. And, and you would never hear about that because you cannot read the Scriptures. So there's this two words that you should know, and it's this. It's on the screen. Solus Scriptura. You have probably heard these two words. Um, this was something that, that um, uh, is important for us to know. Sola Scriptura was the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. This means Scripture alone. And so what the, what the Reformation initially was about was going to the church and saying, you don't have final authority. Scripture has final authority. Saying to the Pope, the Pope's word is not the final authority, if, especially if it goes against what Scripture said. So above all things, we must first obey Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Now there's much, much more to that, but we'll just kind of focus in on this. And so the Anabaptists, they would have lined up with this. But they, like, you know, we've talked about some other things, they wanted to take it even further. So the Anabaptists strongly believed that we must live under the authority of Scripture. So here's a few quotes from some of the early Anabaptists um, on, on what, uh, how they believe Scripture. It says, Matt, Michael Settler, and we've talked about him a few times, he says this, We will be convinced through Scripture. If we see that we are wrong, we will gladly bear our punishment. But if, according to the Scriptures, we are not wrong, then I hope before God that you will change your mind and allow yourself to be taught. Now this was at his trial. This was what he was saying to the people at his trial. Minus Simons, in 1537, he wrote this, We must believe Christ and His Word and abide constantly in His Spirit. Ordinances, an example, or eternal misery will be our position. 
So you can hear there how not only scripture, but other things, how they took these to heart and, and how important they were to them. So you might be asking, so what is the scriptural basis for the Anabaptists and where they would say, this is where we land in regard to um, our view of scripture? So the Anabaptists, a key passage for them would be John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. It should be on the app. Um, so let's take a look at that because in John chapter 1, I think these are also important words for us to understand today. So 1 uh, verse uh, to 5 and then verse 14. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This passage has sometimes been said is at the heart of the Anabaptist understanding of Scripture. So let's look at it carefully because why would this passage be so important? This little word, or this little phrase, the word became flesh. Another translation says, the word became human. Now the obvious question is then, who is the word? It's capital W. And I'm sure most of you here already know, but the word is re referencing to Jesus. Jesus is the word that became flesh. Now think about this for, for us today. Now suddenly we have this tremendous clarity if you're ever wondering, well, what is God like? Well, read the Gospels. What God is like is what Jesus was like. God is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So Jesus was God. And so if you're ever not sure about what God is like, the Anabaptists say, well, Jesus is the Word. He is the flesh. He is the one who came. So now we know, we have clarity about what God is like or, or what God is. And this is important because there will be times where you're going to wrestling, well, what would God want me to do? And, and what is God like? And how does God feel about me? And, and all those kind of things. Well, you can look at Jesus. The Anabaptists say you can look at Jesus, and he's a model for you. Look at how Jesus lived. What, look at what Jesus did. That is who God is. Now, let me read to you a quote from Peter Hoover. And this one you need to listen to carefully, okay? But I think this quote helps us understand this. The Anabaptists had infinitely more than sola scriptura. Okay, if you're underlining things, this is what you would underline in the book. They had community with Christ. Okay, it wasn't just this sola scriptura, scripture, words on paper. They had community with Christ. They were not people of the book. They were people of the man. Now, I think Hoover should have capitalized man here, but let's go on. The Anabaptists did not read in the Gospels that the Word was made paper and ink. They read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then he continues to quote the passage. That's Peter Hoover's um, statement, and I think this is important for us to process. What is he saying? What's Hoover trying to say? I think what he is suggesting is that when people claim the authority of what the Bible says, but are not including with that the Word made flesh, they are misusing Scripture. 
So if someone says, well, the Bible says, but what they say does not line up with what Jesus said or did, they are misusing Scripture. Now, this is radical. This is significant because John is writing this to a time where people knew Jesus. They knew Jesus' family. And all of a sudden you're saying, that kid from Nazareth, that guy, that carpenter's son, that is God. He is God. And imagine what, what that would have done to the people and said, well, we saw him, we recognized him, and what he did. So now suddenly we're able to say, what Jesus did, that is what Scripture would want us to say. Now, Hoover is not trying to drive a wedge here or to suggest that there's contradictions between the written word and the word made flesh. However, we understand that when we come to Scripture, their authority, their inspiration, their power over our lives is because of who Jesus is, not because of the words on paper. Jesus is the full and final revelation of Christ. Of God, sorry. Therefore, all Scripture must be read through the lens of Jesus. Anyone, anything that does not line up with Jesus is a misuse of Scripture. So if you claim the authority of the Word of God, you must keep with the concept of the Word made flesh. You have to keep these together. That is its proper use. And that is what the Anabaptists believed. So the Anabaptists looked to Jesus to understand Scripture. The Anabaptists, they had witnessed the abuse of Scripture and how the church would focus more on the words in Scripture, the, the paper version, and twist them to mean anything they wanted. And they did not focus on Jesus. Therefore, the Anabaptists believed that when people claim the authority of the Word of God, it, if it did not line up with the teaching and then the example of Jesus, that it was a misuse of authority. I trust that you're following that because I think all of us here know people who have misused Scripture. Now let me read another. This is a bit of a lengthier quote from Hans, Hans Denk, 1528. He says this, I value the Scriptures above all human treasure but not as highly as the Word of God. And this is where it gets a little complicated, so follow carefully. Which is alive, strong, eternal, and free. The Word of God is free from the elements of the world. It is God Himself. It is the Spirit and not the letter, written without pen or paper, so that it, that it can never be erased. As a result of this, salvation is not bound to Scripture, even though Scripture may lead one to salvation. We need to understand Scripture cannot possibly change an evil heart, even though it may make it more learned. If salvation depends only on the reading of Scripture or hearing them preached, many illiterate people and many towns to whom no preacher has come would be lost." Be careful with what he says here, but I think he is making an incredibly valid point. That we cannot simply read Scripture and think that Scripture alone saves us. It is in, our salvation is in Christ. So this quote from Hans needs to be carefully understood, but I think we all know people who have the Scriptures, who can quote it even at length, who might even boast about the fact that they have read through it many times, and yet the example of Christ would not be in them. 
Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 37. He's speaking here to the Pharisees. He says, The Father who sent me has made himself test- has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe in the one he sent. Now look at this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying here to these Pharisees, and he would be saying to us today, if you're spending time reading scripture just to understand scripture, and you're not seeing Jesus, you are missing the point of Scripture. So the Anabaptists strongly believed that in order for us to understand Scripture, it had to be read through the lens of Jesus. And that Jesus was the one who would bring clarity to what we read. And if at any time in our lives we were reading Scripture and we would say, well, the Scripture says this, this, and this, and it would not line up with the lifestyle and the teachings of Jesus, then we are misusing that Scripture. So I think, I hope anyway for you, that that helps a little bit to understand, well, where do Anabaptists come from when it comes to understanding Scripture? Everything is centered on Christ. And this is important for us as we now go into the next topic. I want to talk now, and I think this leads us into the other topic that we want to look at today, and that is this idea of non-resistance and non-violence. Sometimes people say pacifism. And pacifism, you have to be a little bit careful with it because pacifism is more this idea of peace and more about bringing peace to other places where non-violence and non-resistance is more about our personal response to someone being violent to us or mistreating us. And so although these are often used interchangeably, I think we do need to be careful because one kind of represents our approach to bringing peace to other places, and the other um, to the nons are more about us living out peace in our own lives. Let me tell you a quick story. Years ago, when Marie and I were the youth pastors here, we went to Pittsburgh to a conference, a youth, a youth conference. And while we were there one evening, the, 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 uh, the um, session started, and I realized that I had forgot to put money into the meter. And so then I'm like, you know what? I told Maria, I'm like, it's, it's like a 10-minute jog, back when I could jog for 10 minutes. Uh, it's a 10-minute jog. Let me quickly run over there, put some money in the meter. I knew exactly where the thing was, and I'll be right back. And so I'm like, all right, off you go. And so off I went. And as I was running, I came to this realization very quickly that I have lost my way. I have got turned around a little bit. And so... You know, I, I quickly realized that I needed to figure out, you know, what, where to go. And I, and I took in my surroundings, and I realized that I also was in a bit of a sketchy part of town, and I needed to be careful with what I did next. But at the same time, I needed direction because I, I wanted, to, you know, I was in a hurry and all this stuff, you get it. So I asked the man if he would help me. And he suggested to me that he would walk me to the parking lot. He knew exactly where it was. Well, I wasn't very interested in this. So I'm like, you know, did one of those, oh, no, now I got it. I, got, I figured it out. And he obviously read right through that. 
um, and realized that I, you know, did not know exactly where I was going. So I thanked him for his time. I'm like, you know what, I'm all right, I got it. And he grabbed my arm. And he indicated that he had something in his pocket. And he asked me for all my money. Now, I'm not super street smart, but I have learned over the years, if you're in a city that you don't know very well, you never put all your money in the same place, on your body, okay? There you go. Free lesson to all of you. Now it's credit cards, no one even, you know, you got your phone, and if you've got your phone, take your thumb off, you're good. Anyway, um, sorry, <sighs> that just turned, that just turned. So anyway, I, I was like, you know what, uh, I opened up my wallet, and all I had in my wallet was five bucks, five Canadian dollars. And he was not exactly impressed. Um, first and foremost, he thought the Canadian money was fake. And he was like, what is this? You know? And Anyway, long story short, I'll keep it short, all right? Long story short, I left there with all my money and with myself intact. And went and paid, found the parking spot, went and paid, um, and went back. And then, of course, that night I told Maria about what happened. And she's like, of course that happened to you. And um, next day we went to the conference and we were with this other youth pastor couple. And so, you know, we just ended up, somehow I ended up, because that's a kind of a story to tell. So I told the guy the story. And I will never forget his response. He says to me, and that is exactly why I carry heat. I'm like, what? And he indicated, he shows me, Buddy is carrying a sidearm at the youth pastor's conference. I was more scared of that guy now than I was of the guy the night before. I'll be totally honest with you. I was like, what in the world? And he then went on what he would have done. He literally ended up saying that if he would have been attacked like that, I'm like, I wasn't attacked. I never used the word attack. Guy grabbed my arm, asked me for all my money. Oh, and, but he was gone. He was off. He literally said one of us would have wound up dead. I'm glad I'm getting a proper response, because if you guys were like, yeah, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'd be really concerned, okay? So the response is helping. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, and so I literally looked at this guy, and I, was in, and I was in disbelief. Marie and I, you know, just like disbelief. Now, pacifism has not always been my approach in life, okay? And, and this idea of nonviolence has definitely not always been my model, but I looked at this guy and I said to him, like, are you kidding? Like, you would have actually shot someone over a few dollars. Anybody want to guess his response? I have a right to defend myself. Five bucks. One of us would have ended up dead. <sighs> okay. What in the world would Jesus have said to that guy? You know, like... Anyway, I mean, don't let your emotions get the best of you. Keep going on the sermon notes. All right. Here's what I need you to hear. You need to understand that both this guy and I, this pastor, we're both pastors. We're both Christians. So you've got two Christians, two pastors, two people who read the same Bible and yet there we are miles apart on how we should respond to being harassed for money. And this is where I believe Hoover's comment or his quote from before that we read earlier about not being people of the book and rather being people of the man comes into play. When we only focus on the words in Scripture, 
we can end up interpreting them to mean whatever we want. We must be people of the man, of Jesus. What would Jesus have done in a situation like that? Well, I can find you a verse. Well, if you don't have a sword, buy a sword. What do you think Jesus meant by that? Use it for revenge. This is why we need to be people of the man, of Christ, reading Scripture through that lens. So let's take a look at a passage. This is, this is the one in, in the book of Matthew that is often used, um, especially with Anabaptists, to support this view of nonviolence. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said. Okay, get your Bibles out. Come on, follow along. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also, the left cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you for your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43. You've heard that it is said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, easy. No. What reward will, it, will you get? Are you not, are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet anyone, any, only your own people, your own people, Jewish people at that time, Mennonites today, Anabaptists, white people, you name it, what are you doing more than others? You're Jesus followers. Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I need more time, but let's go fast. This is pretty clear, right? Anybody confused? Probably not. There's no complicated sentence structure. Jesus is using, isn't using any big doctrinal statement. There's no reference to unknown people that we're like, hmm, who were those people he was referencing, and what does that mean for us? None of that. There's no places, no cultures, none of that kind of stuff really talked about. It's not a difficult text. The question then is, why then are we so confused? Why is this so hard for us to do today? And I think it's right there in the text, after all. Like, if you think about it, let's just summarize. Don't retaliate. Be willing to be persecuted. Don't worry if, you're, if the court cheats you. Do more than for people than they ask you to do. Give more than they ask you. Love friends and enemies. Be perfect because God is perfect. Any questions? It's right there in the text. So why is this so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to understand what Jesus is saying here? And I think the answer is this, and I don't want you to miss this. The reason this is so difficult for us to understand because it's so difficult to do. Never confuse the struggle with understanding and the struggle with doing. And sometimes, and maybe all the time, when Scripture demands you to do something you don't want to do, you're going to try to confuse yourself so you don't understand what it means so you don't have to do it. We're, we're, 
We're rabbit trailing. We don't have time. All right, moving on. So how do we understand this text of nonviolence? What are some of the key points? I'm, you're not going to hear me today say, this is what you should do. But I want to give you some key things to understand with this text. What are some of the key points to help us understand how nonviolent works in society today? So I'm gleaning from a guy named Tim Gittert. Um, excellent book. I hope, and I hope that this will help you find a way through pro- to process through this. So the first one is this. First thing you need to understand. This idea of nonviolence and non-resistance is not for the world. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to disciples of Jesus. This is not something we should think is going to be everywhere in society. Jesus wanted to establish an alternative society that lives by these values. He wants us to go through this approach as his followers. These words are not about how we or how society is to live. This is how we as disciples are to live. Jesus is not trying to overthrow an earthly system. He's speaking here to you and I. And that's important. So obviously the second one is then, this is for the Christian community. Not just for you as an individual Christian, for the community. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he wants to establish um, an alternative. I already read that, sorry. I want you to hear this. This is how Christians are to live in community with one another. Jesus meant for us to take these words to heart and to live them out among each other. These are not just beliefs that you are to have for yourself. They are to be expressed in relationship with others, especially those in the church. Third, this is meant to also be lived out in relationship to our world. Okay? First and foremost, this needs to be lived out within our community. Oh, if the church would take that advice. That we would live at peace with one another. And second and thirdly, this is to be lived out in our, our, our world. Christians should live the same way among Christians as they do non-believers. Okay? And then fourth, this isn't about, this is not about voluntary victimization. And this is the argument that people, so we're just supposed to be victims. We're just supposed to sit back and take it. We're just supposed to like, whatever. And that seems impossible. Christians who live this way do not see their lifestyle through the lens of being victims. And I'll explain that in a little bit. It's the exact opposite, actually. By living this way, you take control of your life. You don't just impulsively respond We choose, like Christ, to lay down our rights, to lay down our lives, not for an earthly kingdom, but for Christ's kingdom. We are not victims. Now how, you may be asking, how are we not victims? How, if we choose the route of nonviolence, are we not victims? Fair question. If you go to the Old Testament... Here, God was already trying to end this cycle of violence. So what did God say? An eye for an eye. What's what's the implication of that? Don't retaliate in a greater way than you were harmed. Only an eye. If they took an eye, you can only take an eye. And in this way, God was trying to end the cycle of violence where you take one eye, I take two eyes, you come and you take more. 
And the cycle just continues. So God was already in the Old Testament trying to end the cycle of violence. Jesus comes along with a more excellent way and says, why not stop all together? Why retaliate? Why even bother? Why not just let it go? Now, why do some of us struggle so much with this? Why, you know, and Jesus might be saying, why do the same thing to hurt others as you were hurt? So he gives us these suggestions. He starts by saying, turn the left cheek. Now, really, really quickly, i got to move here, but in those days, and culturally this is going to break down a little bit, but in those days, if you were struck on the right cheek by the other person's right hand, you were being backhand. The left hand was only used for, um, what's the term, unclean things. So you go there wherever you want. But, so you would, you would not really use the left hand, you would use the right hand, and if you're hitting someone on the right cheek, you are backhanding them. This is a sign of humility, or to humiliate someone. This is what you would do to, you know, to your dog or something like that, or to a slave back then. You move, you know, so you're getting backhanded. So now by turning the left cheek, you are for- forcing the person now to strike you with their palm. And suddenly, why that action you are saying, you will respond to me as an equal. I am not just someone you backhand. You turn the right cheek. You treat me as an equal. You are not a victim. You just took control of the situation. You guys are like, there's got to be a better way than getting slapped. But I get it. Okay. So now the person who strikes you has to recognize you and see you as an equal. Second one, giving the coat as well. Here a person is presumably suing you in an unjust way. They're taking something from you that they probably shouldn't have. And so if someone sues you for your shirt, you give them your coat as well. And again, today this breaks down a little bit. But back in those days, when you took off the coat and you gave it to the person as well, you were standing there naked. Now here's the interesting thing to note. That when you are standing there naked, the shame is not on you. The shame is on the one who is taking everything from you. And so Jesus suddenly says, hey, or Jesus says to them, so give them your coat also. So what's the person going to do? Everybody now recognizes that person just made this person stand there naked because they took everything from them. So the person is probably going to be, no, 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 keep the coat, keep the coat, promise, keep the coat. And all of a sudden, you're actually the one in charge, not the aggressor. You're the one who's dictating the terms. What about the last one? Go the extra mile. In those days... Roman soldiers were legally allowed to force a person to carry their pack for up to one mile, but no more. Now, what would happen if you would carry the pack for one mile, but then stop, refuse to stop? And you keep carrying the pack. Now, the reality is no one seeing you do this would look at you and say, oh, they're just voluntarily doing that. No, no, no. Everybody would assume the soldier is asking you to do something that's not allowed. So now the soldier is actually going to be like, no, put the pack down. Put the pack down because if they get caught forcing someone to carry it more than the one mile, they actually get in trouble. Do you understand how Jesus is saying here, you're not a victim. You can become creative in your response to wrong that does not make you a victim to the aggressor. I love that. Jesus is saying here, be creative in your response. Why just respond in the same manner you were treated? Why just do what would come impulsively easy for you? That was not the Jesus way. He did not do the easy thing. He did the hard thing. And then fifthly, 
Not everything in Scripture or on the Sermon on the Mount should be taken literally. I think this is pretty obvious. It's called hyperbole. Jesus wasn't asking us to cut our right arms off and our left eyes out. There'd be a lot of one-armed people in the room if that was to be taken literally. What Jesus was saying with this is, this is how serious I want you to take my teaching. This is how serious I want you to take my teaching. That if you do not love your enemy, cut your arm off. If you do not resist an evil person, you know, and if you do not respond in the way that Christ would respond, take your eye out. Do you understand? He's saying, this is how serious I want you to take my teaching. Nonviolence is not easy. It shouldn't be easy. What is easy? Come on. Violence. Violence is easy. Retaliation is easy. Revenge is easy. And people get, become consumed by it. And yet they think they're the stronger one. But do the hard thing. Do the hard thing and end the cycle. See, violence comes, I believe, naturally. And Jesus is calling us to do only that which he can empower us to do. So let me ask you a simple question, or you might be asking, so how do we apply the concept of nonviolence? And we have just scratched this topic. How do we apply this topic of nonviolence into our lives? How does a pacifist, or how does a, a nonviolent, non-resistant person go through their life? I want to just assure you that this is by no means answering and, and fixing everything, but this is the approach that I have taken in my life and I believe this may be helpful for you as well. And that is this. Strive to see everyone as an image bearer of God. It's that simple. Strive to see everyone as an image bearer of God. It comes back to the text about doing for the least and not doing for the least. And that you've done for Christ or haven't done for Christ. How do I see someone who is different from me? How do I see them? Do I see color? Do I see faith? Do I see ethnicity? Do I see gender? Now, if I choose to hate, and I choose to actually hate a person, do you realize that in us choosing to hate that person, we have chosen to hate an image bearer of God? This is an important thing for us to... All of us are created in the image of God. If you do not believe with that, it's easy to support violence, abortion, and you name it. Because suddenly these people have no value. Because maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But if we choose to believe that every human being on this earth is an image bearer of God, and you choose to hate, you do I don't think you do what God has called us to do. So what if we start there today? For those of you, because here's the thing that normally happens. When this topic comes up, you already know. Someone comes up, well, what would you do if someone, and it's the most extreme thing in the whole wide world. Someone comes into your house and they're going to this or this to your wife. You would just stand there and watch. And we try to have these kind of complicated topics through the most extreme situations. It's foolish to do that. It doesn't help you any, in any way. 
But what if I would say I will strive in every situation, even something as extreme as that, to see both my wife and this person as an image bearer? One isn't less than the other. So now I am choosing to respond, but in a way that hopefully brings reconciliation and peace to the situation, not just violence. Let me end by reading to a few quotes from the early Anabaptists, and then we'll let you go. Conrad Grable. True Christians believe believers are sheep among wolves, sheep for the slaughter. Neither do they use worldly swords or war, since all killing has ceased with them. Osberg booklet in 1530. No sword nor worldly force was used by the first Christians until the day of Emperor Constantine. Christians did not believe in using the sword in Christ had not given permission to anything more than the sword of the word. Menno Simons, our buddy. True Christians do not take revenge. They are children of peace. Their hearts overflow with peace. Their mouth speaks peace. And they walk in the way of peace. Adrian Henkel. Very simple. A lamb does not bite a wolf. Okay, I just liked it, so I'm going to use that. And then one more from our buddy Menno. Our, we- our wagon fortress is Christ. Our weapon of defense is patience. Our sword is the word of God, and our victory is free, firm and undistinguished from f- faith in Christ Jesus. Iron, metal, spear, and swords, we leave to those who, alas... Consider men's and pigs' blood of about the same worth. Wow. Non-resistance is difficult. And I pray that this has maybe given you something to process. That we will live according to the word made flesh. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for this time. And I wish we could tackle more of this, but I thank you, God, for the, for the attitude in the room of just listening and hopefully embracing. God, we know that in this world we will have trouble, and I pray that we will not be the ones who are causing the trouble, that we would be people of peace, that we would be the ones bringing peace to our neighborhoods, bringing peace to our works, workplaces, bringing peace to our schools bringing peace into our families, our marriages. God, I pray that in those times when we are harmed, that we would not strive to justify ourselves on this earth, but we would surrender it to you. And God, it's complicated because there are times where that doesn't quite work, but Lord, I pray as best as we can that we are not people of retaliation and revenge. Help us, God, in this because this is no easy task. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.